Hey, this is Burke, and due to the nature of this podcast, there might be depictions of graphic violence or harsh language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, so today's episode's going to be a little bit different than I've done in the past. This is actually an episode that I talked about doing a long time ago, sometime last year actually. In today's episode, we're going to do a little bit of world building, but we're also going to design these relics, or at least talk about how relics are made. And we're going to do some world building, putting these relics into your game, as well as I think I'm actually going to build one or two of these things out for you. And we'll talk about the process and kind of how I do things with this. Not saying you should just copy my way of doing things, but it might give you some ideas on how you could build your own. Also, another disclaimer, if my voice sounds different throughout this, it's because I'm recording at different times of the day. I'm starting this a little later than I want to, and I'm probably going to have to take a break halfway through this. Also, I have another disclaimer. I'm not religious, and a subject like this where we're talking about relics, usually these things have something to do with a deity of some sort or somebody attached to a deity, like a saint or something like that. So I'm not going to go completely into like the religious significance of some of these relics. So before we get started, what actually makes a relic? I'm going to use the description from the dictionary because it actually sums it up really well. An object surviving from an earlier time, especially one of historical or sentimental interest. A part of a deceased holy person's body or belongings kept as an object of reverence. Those are two from the dictionary, and they sum it up pretty well. An object granted by a deity would also be considered a relic as well, or a weapon that maybe struck down a deity. Now in a tabletop setting, a lot of these can just be built as these great powerful weapons or objects to make your characters more powerful. Now relics don't necessarily have to follow the same rules as let's say a magical item, even though they are a magical item. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pull out the 5th edition Dungeon Masters book and I'm going to pull up some artifacts that are in there. Artifacts and relics basically are the same thing, more or less. The magical items section can be found on page 165, but the section we're looking for is the artifact section, which can be found on 219. However, we're not necessarily going to build this exactly the same as the book is going to say. We're actually going to use some of this, but we're not going to use all of it. My games typically go really high on the power scales, so my artifacts are probably going to be more powerful than these recommend. So the book recommends that artifact has as many as four minor beneficial properties and two major properties. It also says it can have up to four minor detrimental properties and two major detrimental properties as well. With dealing with artifacts, I do believe there should be detrimental properties. I think that is actually a good thing to take out of this book. However, I find some of these to be very boring. So we're going to put in some scaled up or maybe more interesting versions. The ones I like from this are for the minor beneficial properties. While attuned to the artifact, you gain a proficiency in one skill of the DM's choice. While attuned to the artifact, you're immune to disease. I would also add poison to this as well. And the ones that grant spells on here for the miners. For the major properties that I like, while attuned to this artifact, one of your ability scores of the DM's choice is increased by two to a maximum of 24. I actually would buff this and I would be setting that ability score to 24. When you attack with this weapon while attuned to the artifact, the target takes an extra 1d6 damage of the weapon's type. Same with the last one. I actually buffed this when I build my weapons. They either go up to 2, 2d6 or they go up to 3d6. 
And depending on how difficult this weapon is to get, I might even jump that up to 4d6. But I'll be real honest, I've never actually bumped it up past 2d6. I usually give these weapons crazy modifiers and things, so I don't usually give them too much more damage on the back end. But let's say if that artifact is missing something like that, or let's say they have to go to this crazy place of power to empower the weapon. Oh yeah, I'm going to jump that sucker up to 3d6, maybe even 4d6. And same as the minor ones, I also like all the spells on here. These, however, fit more of a caster weapon build. Well, not just a weapon, but also a armor or a spell book or something. Now, the detrimental ones are kind of all over the place. These, I would homebrew yourself. Most of the time when I build detrimental properties into like an artifact or a weapon itself, I often do it in cursed items a lot. But what I would be doing with these are I would make it more addictive to use the weapon. The last real weapon of power that I've put into my game that actually fits kind of this build was a cursed item that really could have been considered an artifact. But we're going to talk about that one in the cursed items section in a couple weeks. The next World Bone of the Burke section, we're actually going to talk about making real magical items. And you might be asking, well, how do you destroy an artifact? You can look at Lord of the Rings where they had to throw it into a volcano. You might have to take this crazy cursed weapon to where it was made to be destroyed. Maybe it can't be destroyed and maybe it needs to just be sealed away. Well, the easy way to put these into your game is to have them either already built, have a deity grant your player this, or have your player go to a place of extreme power or religious significance. In the Talor campaign, the weapon that Berserker is using in our game could be considered an artifact. It's slowly getting more powers as he levels up and does more things for his deity, but the way it's kind of being built and designed on the fly, this could very well be considered an artifact. Now, this is something really easy to do for paladins, clerics, warlocks even, because there's no rule that an artifact has to be a thing of good. It can be a thing of evil too. All right. So I'm going to take one of these artifacts from this book and we're going to talk about all of its stats, what it does, so we can get an idea of what these things actually look like on paper. And for this, I'm actually going to take the, the artifact that I had in one of my campaigns that was such a pain in the ass to deal with, but honestly made the campaign more fun in the long run because one of the players had this. This artifact is called the Wand of Orcus. Little backstory on why this thing was in my game. My party heard rumors of a a vault that was in this necropolis. After arriving, my party found out that there was a cult that was operating out of this necropolis. The party cleared out the necropolis and fought the lich that was running the cult. They found that this vault had multi-doors and most of them were open. The cult had only been operating out of this necropolis a couple months. The party was then able to open the door and I didn't have loot prepared because at the time I was using a table that I just rolled different dice and that's how I did loot. Because of the significance of this necropolis, I decided I was going to add artifacts to that list as well. Because I have another table that's an addition. Most of the loot was pretty mundane. There was a couple really interesting artifacts in there, but the Wand of Orcus was one of them. The cleric of my party, who was evil aligned, gravitated to that weapon. And they used it for most of the campaign. And ultimately destroying it towards the end of the game. So let's talk about what the Wand of Orcus actually is. Wand of Orcus. Wand. Artifact. Requires attunement. 
The ghastly wand of Orcus rarely leaves Orcus's side. The device, as evil as its creator, shares the demon lord's aims and to snuff out the lives of all the living things and bind the material plane in the stasis of undeath. Orcus allows the weapon to slip his grasp from time to time. When it does, it magically appears when its master senses an opportunity to achieve some fell goal. Made from the bones as hard as iron, the wand is topped with a magically enlarged skull that once belonged to a human hero slain by Orcus. The wand can magically change size to better conform to the grip of its user. Plants wither, drinks spoil, flesh rots, vermin thrive in the wand's presence. Any creature besides Orcus that tries to attune to the wand may make a DC 17 constitution saving throw. On a successful save, the creature takes 10d6 necrotic damage. On a failed save, that creature dies and raises as a zombie. In the hands of the one who is attuned to it, the wand can be wielded as a magical mace that grants plus three to attack and damage rolls made with it. The wand deals an extra 2d12 necrotic damage on a hit. Random Properties the wand has the following random properties. Two minor beneficial properties. One major beneficial property. Two detrimental minor properties and one major detrimental property. The detrimental properties of the Wand of Orcus are suppressed while the Wand of Orcus is attuned to Orcus himself. Protection. You have a plus three to AC while holding the wand. Spells. The wand has seven charges. While holding it, you can use an action and expend one of those, one or more of those charges to cast the following spells. Save DC 18. And they are Animate Dead, one charge. Light, two charges. Circle of Death, three charges. Finger of Death, three charges. Power Word Kill, four charges. Speak with the Dead, one charge. The Wand regains 1d4 plus three expended charges daily at dawn. While attuned to the Wand, Orcus or a follower blessed by him can cast each of the Wand's spells using two fewer charges, maximum zero. Sorry, minimum zero. Call Undead. While you're holding the wand, you can use an action to conjure skeletons and zombies, calling forth as many as them, as you can divide 500 hit points among each undead having an average hit points. See Monster Manual for statistics. The undead magically rise up from the ground or otherwise from its unoccupied spaces within 300 feet of you and obey your commands until they are destroyed or until dawn of the next day, when they collapse into inanimate piles of bones and rotting corpses. Once you use this property of the wand, you can't use it again until the next dawn. While attuned to the wand, Orcus can summon any kind of undead, not just skeletons and zombies. The undead don't perish or disappear at the dawn of the following day, remaining until Orcus dismisses them. Sentience. The wand of Orcus is sentient, chaotic evil item with an intelligent of 16 and a wisdom of 12 and a charisma of 16. It has hearing and dark vision with a range of 120 feet. The wand communicates telepathically with its wielder and can speak, read, and understand abyssal and common. Personality. The wand's personality is to help satisfy the Orcus's desire to slay everything in the multiverse. The wand is cold, cruel, nihilistic, and bereft of humor. In order to further its master's goals, the wand feigns devotion to its current user and makes grandiose promises that it has no interest in fulfilling, such as vowing to help the user overthrow Orcus. Destroying the wand. 
Destroying the Wand of Orcus requires that it be taken to a the positive energy plane by the ancient hero whose skull surmounts it. For this to happen, the long-lost hero must first be restored to life, no easy task given the fact that Orcus has imprisoned the hero's soul and keeps it hidden and well-guarded. Bathing the wand in the positive energy causes it to crack and explode, but unless the above conditions are met, the wand will instantly reform on Orcus's layer of the abyss. Okay, well that's the wand of Orcus, and now that we have a template of what a artifact that's already built kind of is, you can kind of see why I was talking about the cookie cutter version of the weapon with the DM thing actually gives you to build your own might be a little bit on the weak side. I mean, the fact that the wand of Orcus does 2d12 on melee hit versus the 1d6 the book was recommending, you can kind of see where I'm talking about. As well as the other aspects of it that you have in addition to what the weapon actually does. You want the weapon to feel super powerful, and when you're building your own artifact, it should feel that way too. So let's build an artifact. Well, let's build two. Let's go ahead and build one that's an item. Let's go ahead and build one that's also a weapon. And by item, let's do a body part replacement. And let's call this the Tongue of Ogma. And if you couldn't tell, it's going to be a tongue replacement. And if you're not familiar with Ogma, Ogma is the Faerunian greater deity of bards. So unlike a regular item or weapon, this is going to be focused more towards around conversation it's going to be a more spellcaster focused item. And let's say to install this tongue, it's going to need to be surgically installed. Your regular tongue needs to be surgically taken out and it also needs to be healed and then attuned to. Now, is this tongue actually Agma's tongue? Probably not. It probably was a former avatar's tongue, so it still fits the same build. Okay, so let's start with, let's give this thing one major benefit, two minor benefits, one major detriment and two minor detriments. Because it's not a weapon, I'm not even going to put in the extra damage stuff for the roll chance. So that reduces what I need to actually roll. Okay, and I went ahead and rolled. So for the one major benefit, we got you gain an additional seventh level spell. I went ahead and added this one advantage on charisma based skill checks while attuned. And it went ahead and added a third level spell as well. And those are the benefits. For the major one, I actually made my own. The tongue actually absorbs magic from nearby scrolls, artifacts. Actually, there is one that's similar to this, but let's just say it absorbs magic from items that aren't attuned. So in here, there's actually one that says you cannot smell. For the miners, I'm actually going to switch that to taste. And there's another one on here that says animals are more hostile to you. I'm actually going to say more bards are more hostile to you and are after your tongue. Now, as much as I'd love to give this thing a personality, I'm not going to do that. Now, because this is a regular kind of artifact I might build I'm gonna go ahead and build in the increases it's a bit increases your charisma ability score to 24. I think I kind of want to give it the same thing with the charges as the wand of Orcus obviously aren't going to be the same. I'm going to go ahead and set it at five and you know, I'm not going to go through the spell list and find them. Let's give access to five spells, most of which take two charges and one taking one. Okay. We're mostly done with this one. I think it needs something else. Let's go ahead and put charm spells no longer require to be give physical contact. You can charm people and audiences just from a distance. Actually, this is, makes this thing super powerful with that. I might even be tempted to put immune to charm while it's 
attuned as well. But I'm kind of on the fence with that one. Now, destroying the tongue. Do I want this to be kind of crazy? Not really. I think with an artifact like this, if the tongue is removed surgically and it isn't implanted, let's say within 24 hours, I'm going to say the tongue become just rots away. And let's go ahead and say if the tongue is removed, the person that had the tongue removed will not be able to have a tongue restored. Like you can't use greater restoration and bring one back. Essentially killing a bard because a bard wouldn't be able to do most of what a bard does. So it would incentivize if you're going to make this decision, you need to make this decision or and it needs to be permanent. Okay, last one. And we want this to be a weapon. Well, given that I'm pretty close to building something like this for my one of my party members, I'm going to go ahead and build this for my game. And I already know the name for it. We're going to call it the Siege Breaker's Bow. And let's start with, it has a plus three to hit. And all damage from this weapon is force damage. Like all weapon damage from this weapon is force damage, not piercing damage. And you know what? This bow does an additional 3d8 damage on hit. One of the side benefits to having the bow is the bowstring itself has access to a bag of holding inside of it that can store upwards of a thousand arrows. I was tempted to have a not use arrows, but I decided to do, go against that. Okay, now for its special ability. We're going to go ahead and call it Siege Breaker. Once per day, resetting at dawn, the attuned user can use all actions in one turn to activate Siege Breaker mode. The shot fired through Siege Breaker mode cannot be stopped. Once the arrow strikes a wall, it detonates, doing 40d6 force damage. And you heard me right. I said 40, 4-0. This ability only works on walls. You know what? Let's add gates and doors to that as well. Also, also in a hundred meters radius, all creatures must make a DC 20 dex saving throw or be hit with rubble, dealing 8d6 bludgeoning damage. Half on a save. Okay, those are its passive abilities. Let's go ahead and give it two bene major beneficials, one minor beneficial, two major detrimental, and one minor detrimental. So let's go ahead and give the for its major beneficial increases the deck score to 22. I'm not going to go ahead and do 24 and I'm going to go ahead and change one of these. I'm going to increase their shoot distance by 200 meters with this bow. That is actually pretty crazy with all the stats with this, but it fits the kind of siege breaker thing. I'm kind of going with it. I'm also going to make another one. If arrows are shot at the person with the bow, you can flip a coin. If it lands on heads, the bow absorbs the arrows into its quiver. Okay. Now for the major deck detrimental one. I already know what I want and it's not on this list. The bow needs to destroy something once per day. Like it has a mighty need and it makes the person who's wielding the bow feel that mighty need as well. Let's go ahead and add a different one too for the other major detrimental. I'm going to go ahead and say when you use siege breaker mode, it eats half of your health. Okay. For the minor one, I'm going to put that you're forever at a calorie deficit and you have to eat significantly more. Uh, the one on here says six times as much. I think that's kind of ridiculous. I'm going to go with three times as much. And I'm going to say that's because the bow is so much harder to pull that your body it has to consume more calories to feed the body 
to use the bow. Okay, how do you destroy this bow? Now we could do the whole thing where if it's not attuned, the, the bow explodes. We could do the whole thing where actually we could do the whole thing is if it doesn't use siege breaker mode once per day, the bow explodes. Okay, well, that's two different kinds of artifacts just kind of built on the spot. I literally sat here and just built it as I was sitting here. I had an idea of what I wanted for the siege breaker bow. It's on my list of things to put into my game. We're currently on a little hiatus right now. We have some players that are going through some stuff right now and they just need to have a break. Now, before I wrap up this episode, and this is a bit longer than I normally record, let's talk about going through the process of granting a player a weapon over time, which we know, like looking at the artifact thing, it's easy to scale up and add things. So if you have a power Paladin who is doing jobs for their deity and is constantly having their weapon powered up as they do these things. That's a great long campaign thing and they never have to worry about getting a different weapon. But there's also forging your own weapons like this. And so you would do some building for that. And let's do a little bit of building right here. I said I'd do some world building. Let's do some world building. And since Planescape's just around the corner, let's set this in the Astral Sea. The party has hired out a spell jammer and they are crossing the Astral Sea. They've acquired materials of exquisite quality and they're looking for a place called the Crucible of Worlds. And not just any kind of crucible, the crucible Muradin used to build his dwarven worlds. The party has traveled for months and they can't seem to quite find this place. It has been lost to time itself. They had even contacted Muradin himself and Muradin isn't even sure where he left it. The party works with Muradin to try to restore his memories. And eventually they find out exactly its location. They head there and they find that it is being used by the demons to feed the blood war weapons. The party fights as many demons as they can, cutting their way to the forge itself. As many demons that are swarming them, they realize that only one of them is going to get the weapon they desire. And only that member can forge the weapon. The barbarian begins forging his great axe as waves and waves of these demons attack. Some find themselves thrown into the crucible itself, feeding the weapon. The cleric just realizes that the souls are getting sucked into the crucible itself. The process is expedited because of the magic of flowing through the crucible, but it still takes time. The barbarian pulls out his still bright red great axe out of the forge. The weapon instantly attunes to him. He swings his great axe and it sends out a shockwave knocking back all the demons in his path. The party sprints to their spell jammer and is barely able to make it before they leave. Muradin decides that the crucible is too dangerous to be left unattended and destroys it. Well, that was a fun little bit of world building. I would have done more, but it's already 940 at night and I need to be at work at 630 tomorrow morning. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a fun little process kind of talking about how to build these things, or at least how I build these things. Now, what I didn't really get into is like secondary relics. I think I'll do like a side quest this week to try to put some more information out on that. And if I can't get it out this week, I'll get it out next week. But if you enjoyed this episode, you can let me know on Twitter at Burkhart Gaming. As a reminder, we have a Discord. You can find it as well as the other socials in the show description below. The next episode of the Telor campaign is airing on August 20th, this coming Saturday. And I play Raymond, the Changeling Bard. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, you could tell a friend about it. That'd be awesome. And thank you for making it to the end of the episode. No, I don't have anything after this. And I'll catch you on the next one.